0: It's serious. 960X, Bruno and Buckface in the morning. <laughs> ew, ew, ew. <laughs> Bruno, Bruno, let me tell you. Last night, Super Bowl 43, or 43, whatever. Super Bowl 53 was outstanding. All right, that is hard-nosed football, okay? Yeah. That was real football. When I when I took in for football, I turned it for the defense. It's all about the D. Yes, you... Game is won in the trenches, all right? If your ski team scores more than 13 points, they're playing football wrong. <laughs> you know, fuck it, Brody just wanted it more. Brady just wanted it more. He had more heart, okay? And, you know, just that great, that great white talent. Just that yeah. pure, pure, pure as the driven snow. Bruno, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it's that Julian element, all right? I always trust a guy <laughs> named Julian. <laughs> He's like the great, Body he everything worked out for him? It was great. Exactly. It was great, yeah. Rock was great, you know. All all his metal pieces came together, you know. All his all his pins and nails, they were all they were all just working together. And he fucking nailed it, dude. No, Bruno, 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 you're crazy. No, you know who the biggest choke artist of the night was? Sean McVay. Let me tell you, oh the god. whiz kid in quotes here. Oh let me my tell god, <laughs> show off like, oh, I'm so smart. Hey, you he weren't smart enough to take on Belichick's defense last night, all right, kid? You tell him fucking fuckface. You tell him. <laughs> That's why right. you should never put anybody in charge who's under 45 years old. This is what I've been saying. This is what I've been saying, Bruno. This is the perfect time to announce we're going to be partnering with Boston Sports. All right? All right, <laughs> Boston Sports. John, we'll, at- we'll save it for after the commercial break, all right? Okay. Go to commercial. Bruno's Butt Face is brought to you by Phillips Catheters. <laughs> Any listeners are approaching the end of life. <laughs> <laughs> have, inco- have incontinence with confidence. <laughs> with up's catheters. I'd buy that. I'd buy that. I, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with like erectile dysfunction. Uh, no, as, not- as John, as the upside proof, catheters, funnier. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's the one thing that was missing from the uh, the untouchables. Not enough catheter jokes. He doesn't have to touch him uncomfortably. Instead, I believe Driss, oh, I don't want to put socks on a guy. Oh, that's just gross. That's hella hella gay, dude. (laughs) I mean, my biggest problem is that they don't kiss in the movie. (laughs) Kiss, <laughs> kiss, 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 kiss. Yeah, they don't even do the European introduction cheek-wise. Or... Oh, yes, that's true. Well, he can only move his neck, so he can only move his cheeks so much. Yeah, that's true. Why are we even talking about that movie, Greg? That movie is old news. Welcome to the Aspiring Snops podcast, where we talked about movies from weeks ago. Why are we still talking about this, guys? I know I know, the Untouchables lit the world on fire, but it's like, why are we wasting our time repeating what we already talked about? Exactly. Instead of talking about movies from weeks ago, we talk about movies from decades ago, classics that have still been seared into our collective memory, and that we want to revisit and see, are they worthy in terms of occupying that headspace? Mm -hmm. And this week, oh, we were just fired up. You know, all the sports ball that was happening this past weekend, the the most exciting, excruciatingly exciting Super Bowl (laughs) we've ever had. You know, it just it just got us in this this athletic mindset and we were just oh we were we're jazzed. We're we like we're like a bunch of pack animals. We're like raging, raging, raging bulls. <laughs> I that was good. I thought th- 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 you know what? I'd give myself mm. an A plus for that one. No. No. What? Gross. No. I'm sorry, we all can't I'd... come up with catheter puns on this. Why? <laughs> Jeez. Well, John, I, I I disagree with this notion because I mean, very important question for you. You fucked my wife. What? Greg, Greg, you fuck what, you what you my talk- wife? What are you talking you about? What wife? are you talking about? <laughs> you fucked my what are you wife. You You're crazy? You are crazy? <laughs> Fuck my wife. <laughs> Go ahead and hit me. Uh, this is my only second time viewing it. This is your very first time viewing *Raging Indeed. Bolt. Yes. A film with the reputation of now uh, the rightful winner of the Best Picture Oscar back in 1980. Uh, mm-hmm. That now belies its its reputation. Like, oh, it's the underdog. Like Jake LaMotta himself, the underdog <laughs> who should have <laughs> that should have um, experienced uh, Oscar glory, but instead Martin Scorsese had to wait uh, 26 years. So. But again, I think I think that's the perfect place for Marty. You know, he's, he's got, he's got to perpetually be the underdog. That way he still has class. Yeah. yeah. He, he could have been somebody. He could have he been stay- a contender. Yeah, he stays hungry, unlike, uh, his, uh, contemporaries, Coppola, mm-hmm. uh, Roman Polanski. <laughs> George Lucas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brian De Palma. Did Brian, do, has Brian De Palma ever won? Uh, no. I, I, I can't remember the last time he was even nominated, unfortunately. He's. The 90s was a bad time for him. It's, oh, it's oh, been dear. it's been a long way down from Carlito's Way. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Wait, he directed the sequel too. Carlito's Way? What are, you, what are you talking about? Carlito's Way is not a sequel. It's not. No, I thought it was a sequel to. Uh, Scar- oh wait, Scarface died. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> why why do I think of Carlito's Way as like a? It's it's a spiritual sequel. Uh, it's a it? spiritual. Yeah, that's okay. What mean, that's, all right, guys, if, if, but folks, in any event. <laughs> We also revisit this movie because of the legendary performance by Robert De Niro,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which not only continued the tradition of a a, a great leading performance playing a, a real life figure,
1: mm-hmm.
0: now becoming an Oscar trope, but also the the extreme body transformation. Yes, because he gained he gained sixty pounds to play uh, a post career Jake LaMotta, and is practically unrecognizable if I dare <laughs> abuse the term. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Uh, One of the things that did bother me is that obviously they shot all the boxing scenes at one point or another, so he does go through quite a dramatic transformation, but for some reason every single scene where he's boxing, he's still kind of in that lean form, which I think is kind of unfair because, again, the film makes such a point about him making sure he maintains his weight. And uh, I don't know if the movie was trying to put too much fine a point on it, but obviously his weight is very important. He needs to make sure that he's in the right weight class, and I think that's also maybe a contributing factor to why he was so uh, emotionally unstable. Possibly. Um, yeah. Also growing up in poverty in the Bronx at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, Greg, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I think Jake LaMotta's greatest fights were outside the ring. <laughs> don't you agree? <laughs> John, that, that that's a fair point. All right, John, let's let's dispense with the cliches. Okay, <laughs> what did you think upon revisiting it for the very first time? And and Greg, you're not the, <laughs> revisiting as, it for the very first time. Yeah, <laughs> and you're not as big of a Marty Scorsese stan as I am. Mm. So, what did you think of *Raging Bull*? Well, that's unfair. You know, I love my Marty. That's true. Okay, I've watched Maddie. his masterclass like ten thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny because you know I, one of the things. I've discovered about us doing this podcast is when we talk about a movie, we talk about it in terms of like tightness, like how good the screenplay is and like if it all naturally flows or if it gets us point across. And watching this movie, what I love about it is its impressionism. It's just yeah. it's very loose form and you know, not everything has a callback, not everything kind of like structurally all fits together, but it's just so beautiful. and it mm. all just flows like so naturally and. The, You know, there's obviously those great kind of, like, transition scenes where, uh, like, I think kind of leading into the third act, you know, he wins his title fight. Finally, he's like, get some recognition, and then we just cut right back to Joe Pesci sitting Mm. on a couch. Um, You know, it's got those, like, great moments, but I just love the kind of, like, balletic quality of the fight scenes, and, you know, it's just... Again, it does feel like very true to life, like someone kind of reminiscing about all their memories. Obviously, someone who's probably been brain damaged once or twice <laughs> too many times. So yeah, I appreciate it uh, just aesthetically. It's just an absolutely gorgeous movie. I'm I'm glad you did too, because this is this was only my second time uh seeing it as mm-hmm. I. Said before, and while we're abusing cliches, I'll say <laughs> this movie requires a second viewing. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> while I admired it the first time, maybe I wasn't in the right headspace or something like that. But I, like, truly, like, kind of fell in love with this movie this time. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, it's it's part of it is. The, very obvious contrast between uh jake lamont's fights in the rings and his uh turbulent uh, domestic life both with mm-hmm. his brother with his managers um the neighborhood around the bronx and of course uh, as we'll get to later his spouses but also i think you're right in terms of like how the story unfolds i think i i finally accepted like okay this isn't gonna have the foreshadowing that goodfellas does it's, it's no. not gonna have like the the constant energy that say casino does however it's it's to the movie's benefit, when you have, as you said earlier, the balletic scenes of the or the the amazing camera movements in the in the boxing ring, combined with like a, a lockdown single shots of him and his brother like arguing. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I mean just as just as a as a piece of artwork, I mean it's incredible this movie. <laughs> I mean, I and you brought it kind of put to a point where you talk about, like, foreshadowing or payoffs and things like that, and it, I guess it also kind of makes sense, because it's like, obviously, his life was such a mess. It's like, obviously, mm. nothing's going to fit into a nice little, perfectly packaged story, so they didn't even really try. It's just kind of like a lot of little vignettes, and none of them all kind of lead into each other. It doesn't even, you get a sense, I mean, obviously, they're in chronological order, but you really could have put this movie in any kind of order, and it still would have worked, because uh, we do I get those... Know title cards to remind you what year is currently it is and it's it's very hard i think nowadays for a movie to kind of try to capture that amount of time on screen like you talk about kind of biopics nowadays they tend to just pick one little summer or something like that or like the one year and then you know try to just capture that instead of trying to capture a whole life yeah i'll push back on that notion that oh it'd be just compelling if it was chronological because the movie just start in terminus rest it's at the it's at the very end it's post uh, Robert De Niro gaining 60 pounds like mm-hmm. this big fat maluk, um trying to recite he's a has-been yeah he's- trying to recite his like stage routine Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we cut to 20 years earlier, and, yeah, he's a lean, mean fighting machine. And what's also great story-wise is that he loses his first bout, and it looks mm-hmm. a little unfair. And so, like, our sympathies, even though he is um, a, a violent, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> later in the story, lecherous and very disrespectful person, mm-hmm. um, our sympathies kind of do lie with him because he's also, like, this scrappy underdog as well. What you me in the face. What?
2: I want you to in the face. Forget about it. Joey, I want you to hit me in the face. Go ahead. Go ahead, Take your best I said, shot. forget about it. I ain't doing it. Come on. We have fights all the time. When you worried now, you're going to hit me in the face. Hit me in the face. Go ahead. No. Are oh, you afraid? Afraid of what? Come on. I'll be a little faggot. Come on. Hit me. I ain't a faggot. Take your best shot, man. Come on, Jack. Huh? You're going to be a real jerk. You want me to punch you in the face? Hey, Joey, did I not tell you just to do it? Now I'm telling you, you got to do it. I ain't hitting you. Hey, I'm your little brother, Joey. I'm telling you something. I know what you said. I ain't doing it. I don't care if you get mad. I ain't doing it. Fucking nut. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I don't have any gloves anyway. We're going to hit you with? table? I ain't doing it. Use that over there. What? That's right. Use that <sighs> Wrap it around your hand. How many times I got to tell you? Not too many more. Go ahead. All right, go ahead. You want me to hit you? I want you to hit me with everything you got. I want you to fucking lay me out. Go ahead. You sure? Yeah. All right. Harder. Yeah. you one punch I get, take it up the ass. Come on. Harder. 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 That's hard. The fuck? What do you take want?
0: It so while, like, and not only is it in contrast to scenes of his domestic life with scenes in the ring it's also we follow all the travails of his boxing career because we have that first bout where it seems like he was unfairly scored he was a victim of an unfair scoring mm-hmm. there's another one I think this became my new favorite uh, scene in the movie where he's challenged with throwing a fight his brothers uh, getting in is now in cahoots with the mafia and he's charged with throwing a fight and we see following that scene like him breaking down with his managers like how how emotional he is and so that that lends so much to how how emotionally important this story is Um, same with Rocky and all these other like boxing movies like you have to see like the impact (laughs) that it has on their lives (laughs) I am although I am a little kind of annoyed that it still went in that direction. It's like obviously it's like oh he has to take a dive. Is he going to take the dive? Like I feel like that's a little on every boxing movie. Has to I that. know, I but mean, this <laughs> but that's also what makes this movie great is that it tries so hard to be like the anti-boxing movie. Like we don't see you know he wins the big title fight halfway through the movie and then we see him kind of become a bum for the rest of his life, you know. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm sure there's also that piece of trivia. There's only, you know, x amount of minutes, like 20 minutes of actual boxing in this 2-hour movie. <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, I read the trivia, and uh, Scorsese says, like, the black and white was uh, partly an artistic decision, but also mostly just to differentiate it from Rocky, because, you know, this was only four years out from Rocky. uh, Boxing movies were still quite popular, so they wanted to... There was obviously that choice. They were actively trying to make it less of... I mean, obviously, they still owe a huge debt to On the Waterfront. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That, too. Uh, (laughs) Although, technically, you haven't seen On the Waterfront, have you? No, I have not. (laughs) Well, because... Speaking that's a that's a movie with literally no boxing scenes. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, do you, would you still consider it a boxing movie? I kind This of well yeah, I well let's call it, let's call it a Oscar Beatty biopic, even before that term oh, okay. kinda of came into true, yeah. yeah, and so and speaking of its influence, I'm, it reminded me of, uh, of all the other young actors who want to be like De Niro in this movie. Uh, I Think of like Jake Gyllenhaal and Southpaw, <laughs> and Miles Teller had a had a boxing movie that went nowhere. Oh, that's right! Oh my gosh, <laughs> flashback! Um, don't forget Macky <laughs> Mack in the fighter. Oh yes, Macky Mack in the fighter. He, he's a fighter. Well, I mean, it, you know, boxing is obviously the best. Uh, sport to capture on cinema. It's in a confined space, literally between two people. It's just, it's you know, a climactic bout, like a winner-take-all situation. It's like it's yeah. a, it's it's the best sport to capture in cinema. Absolutely. And speaking of uh, Martin Scorsese's skill, actually putting it like, enlivening that, because how do you shoot it? Well, you shoot it like wrestling. You have a camera, like, in the ring or just on the on the ropes or something, mm-hmm. and you get in it in a wide, but, you know, the way that Martin Scorsese does it, in my particular, my favorite shot of the movie, um, when he's in his, I believe his first fight with Sugar Ray Robinson, his mm-hmm. greatest rival, and, yeah, there's one scene, like, where Jake LaMotta has the upper hand, the camera spins around, and then suddenly, you know, Sugar Ray is beating the crap out of him. <laughs> And then we also get the kind of climactic one where he's he's rematched with the Amada and hes just kind of like gives up and says like hit me hit me hit me and yeah. you know you know it like the cameras they're both you know it switches perspective they're both looking down the barrel of a lens and you know it does a there's a point where it does like a Spielbergian zoom which I thought was kind of um, interesting John, John's called a dolly zoom. Dolly zoom, Zo Hitchcock it... first popularized it and the oh Vertigo. excuse me. <laughs> all right fine it's just one of those episodes where john reveals all his ignorances okay all right it, and, and greg re, and greg reveals his brilliant <laughs> insight into movies <laughs> um, i because greg i'm playing a mook i'm a mook this episode okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm fuck-faced this episode yeah, that's no i'm fuck-faced oh that's brutal. right i'm br- i'm brutal hey Yeah. <laughs> hey come on what are you doing come on let's just go get a sandwich. Yeah. John, let's talk about some of those mooks, particularly uh his brother his brother Joey played by Joe Pesci. Ah, uh, yes. This is the the film that started it all. Yeah. Started that classic uh, the classic partnership, De Niro yes. and Pesci. Yes. And of course, and, like all their partnerships, Pesci has to kick someone's ass at one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't start out that way. I do like that it's like a upper hand this is something they play up in later into much greater effect in a Casino or Casino and Goodfellas mm-hmm. but it's clear that He's he's the literal younger brother um, who's kind of picked on. There's a sparring match where Lamada sees, or sorry, Jake sees that his brother is now in cahoots with the Mafia. Um, mm-hmm. His buddy, uh, Salvatore, is played by Frank Vincent, another part of this uh, trio, John. Come mm-hmm. on, can't, can, can't forget him. Rest in peace. Yep, yep. Uh, and so he starts, like, picking on, in terms of the, <laughs> he's completely overmatched anyway. He probably shouldn't <laughs> be a sparring partner, but yeah, he, <laughs> and uh yeah he he obviously wrestles him a little too aggressively which is a little unfair um yes and then there's also that uh again the kind of the first scene we see them together you know you get that scene where he's like come on hit me hit me and it's almost mm-hmm. like condescending it's like he can take whatever punch uh you yeah. can throw at him yeah uh, they yeah they have a pretty interesting relationship um and what i also like <laughs> to about to put it, it mildly <laughs> to put it mildly and uh what i also kind of like is that you know there's no kind of Big climactic fight that kind of causes them to like part ways, and there's also no big kind of reconciliation either. Uh, Jake returns to New York for you know <laughs> he's trying to pawn money. He's you know we'll, this we'll is following him. yeah his retirement. He's been arrested. Mm-hmm. Things things aren't going. His wife divorces him. Things aren't going great for Mister Little Muggs. Mo- yeah Moana exactly. At this point he's he's life. low on cash, and wouldn't you know it, he runs into his brother on the streets of New York, picking up a, a sandwich from the deli. You know yeah. Um, And, you know, he tries to kind of, like, reconnect, but obviously Joey's not having any of it, so, you know. And he just gets in the car and drives away, (laughs) and that's kind of it for that scene. And then Joe Pesci's out of the movie, and I'm kind of glad they brought him back, because, again, Joe Pesci was not a presence at all, basically in the third act, except for that one scene. And, again, like, I kind of want to give kudos and credence, like, it's weird, it's like... If the, if the filmmaking on display wasn't as spectacular, I'd be like, well, that's just a poor structural problem. Like, <laughs> what, what happened in the background? But obviously, because this movie works on so many levels, I'm like, ah, yes, the right choice. That was the right choice. <laughs> I'm
2: telling you now, if I hear anything, I swear on am mother I'm going to kill somebody. I'm gonna kill somebody, Joey. Well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy. Go kill people. Kill Vicky, kill Salvi, kill Tommy Como. Kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself, the way you eat. You're a fat fuck. Look at you. What do you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean kill you? Me. Kill me. Start here. Kill me first. Do me a fucking favor. Cause you're driving me crazy. You're a killer. You're a big shot. Just kill. You're a killer. Excuse me. What do you mean by you, though? So? What does that mean? Yeah, mean not Even you don't even know what you meant by you. Don't mean nothing. Joey, that meant something. You mentioned Tommy, you mentioned Salve, you mentioned you. You included you with them. You could have said anybody, but you said you and them. You really let this girl ruin your life. Look at you. She really did some job on you. You know how fucking nuts you are? Look what she did to you. You fucked my wife. What? You fucked my wife. How could you ask me a question, how could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that?
0: There's so, Well, yeah, there's so much more to their relationship, including him setting up uh, uh, his brother Jake with uh, the beautiful, buxom Vicky. You fuck my wife? You fuck <laughs> my wife? <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, and uh, yanking our callers here, the beautiful buxom 15-year-old Vicky. (laughs) Oh, Jake LaMotta likes him young. (laughs) Uh, So what did you think? Um, There's that opening scene. There's only one uh, scene with his first wife, essentially, for all intents Mm -hmm. and purposes. And and obviously it's a huge argument. It devolves into domestic violence. And then later, Joey uh, endeavors to set him up with Vicky. Mm-hmm. And they explain that she's the kind of girl who you know you got to go on a few dates with. She doesn't she doesn't give it up easily. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously he winds her, dines her, bring her home, make sure the wife's not home, and uh, it's assumed that they uh, do the horizontal monster mash. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, John, it was 1941. <laughs> okay. Monster Mash had not come out yet. <laughs> okay. <fine. laughs> um, I don't know how I feel about the Vicky character. Um, it's weird. It's like. I can't help but think about this in terms of like Goodfellas and Casino. And so, you know, the problem is with Casino is like the girlfriend there was just kind of like batshit nuts and you couldn't really relate to her. And I've, then I've, obviously Goodfellas is the standard because, uh, Catherine or is it Ka- Catherine or Caitlin? Oh, it's, um, Karen. Karen. Because <laughs> Karen. Because, <laughs> <Karen. laughs> uh, Goodfellas is obviously the gold standard because Karen is such a well rounded, uh, Character who's kind of on even footing with her. She's the closest to like a second main protagonist. Yes. We get her perspective basically, mm-hmm. both both in voiceover and in a few scenes later with uh, with the Robert character. character. Mm-hmm. Vicky, I felt like didn't have enough of a presence in this movie. Like I kind of wanted to see her. I mean, again, the whole point is that she is kind of a meek and kind of doting housewife. And again, it's only when Jake lamont is kind of on the downturn, she's like, "I want a divorce." Yeah, well, I, I want to push back. I don't think she's meek. Uh, for one thing, yeah, she there there's this um, I don't want to call it a date, but um, <laughs> their kind of first encounter when Joey sets them up. Um, And and I would say... It's fair to say that sparks aren't flying. And part of that is her, like, independence. She's like, okay, I know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm not going to give it up that easy. Well, I think it was also... Because Jake LaMotta is not exactly, you know, a Romeo. (laughs) No. There's that point, too. Um, But she reminded me of... um, We just saw Scarface, and we had many complaints about Michelle Pfeiffer's character, who basically just uh, takes a backseat, in it just sits in the background of scenes, but, like, rolls her eyes at, like, the action around them. Mm. And I kind of felt the same way here. This This is a movie produced in the 80s, post, like, Women's Liberation. Mm-hmm. So we can't have them just. We can't have the female characters. Well, unfortunately, we can't give them too an act too much of an active role in the story uh, for some oh. reason. Yeah, but we have to show them as strong, independent. So this was kind of the, the go between that Oliver Stone had in Scarface and Paul Schrader and the other co writer had in this movie. Like you know, she's she's gonna she's gonna sit in the back seat of the movie, but she's not gonna enjoy it. And, okay. <laughs> yeah. As you said, the only moment of agency she has is when she finally does divorce this um, this Lummox uh, following his arrest. <laughs> I think the other thing, too, is I think she was hired mostly based on her looks. I don't know. If, cause again, I don't think she shows off enough of her acting range in this movie, unfortunately. Well, no, I, and I think that's part, part of how it's written. Mm-hmm. It's probably, especially in the voice of Jake LaMotta in his autobiography. <laughs> um, I guess he probably didn't such. give her too much credence. <laughs> probably didn't give either of his ex-wives that much credence. <laughs> Was he only married twice? Do you know, or uh, honestly, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay. going to assume twice because. you're not is. the official Jake LaMotta biographer. Come on. No, it's you're supposed his to own, have these He's answers. his own biographer. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he dictated to uh, Joseph Carter and Peter Savage. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, going back to Jake, and one of the other kind of weird things about this movie is again the timeline and just kind of how quickly things shift, and. I kind of want to talk about the third act and just kind of how different that is than the rest of the movie and just kind of how quickly things shift based on what he does in post-retirement. He basically just buys a nightclub Mm-hmm. and starts performing and you know it, it seems like he actually does a pretty good job like I think the the movie isn't judging him too hard for his actual like stage persona <laughs> I mean no. granted it's a little rote but <laughs> <laughs> well I, at this point he has he is the champ he's achieved his his life's goal gotten his money gotten out of the neighborhood is now living comfortably in Florida
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there's I, I do like the, how this is introduced with you know, speaking of kind of, there's the camera eye and perspective, like, this is introduced with, like, a like a puff piece interview about mm-hmm. what he's doing in his post-retirement life. hmm But, yeah, it does feel so much different. It, You're right. I mean, it feels, uh, there's something about it that's a little off, and mm-hmm. I think it's, it, there are scenes in, like, the nightclub where it's, it's a lot wider, like, in this, I guess, we identify mostly with Jake LaMotta in the ring, that's because the camera work is so intimate with him, it's so close. Mm-hmm. In those in those scenes, the intensity is so high, and then in these later scenes, we feel that disconnect because, I mean, not only is he girthier, but the camera's like farther away, and we're not—it's like we're losing touch with him in these later scenes. Yeah, I mean, there's also the fact that you said everything was lighter. Well, it is taking place in Miami instead of New York, Mm -hmm. so there's obviously that change in lighting and that shift in weather. You know, you can make the make the argument about that. But yeah, you're probably right about the whole, you know, camera being more distant and, again, now he's he's turned into a balloon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> With, Like, great prosthetic work, I'd say, on his face, too, especially. It's much That's puffier. Good, you, too. you know, like he's showing those signs that, you know, he's, he's gotten his face beaten for a living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, even in the scene prior in his final bout with Sugar Ray Robinson, it literally accepts punches, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. he, he's barely recognizable, and has to has the garble out like you never knocked me down, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> and those bl- and those squibs, those face squibs, like, yeah. <laughs> he punches them, and it's like blood squirts out like a big yeah. zit. <laughs>
3: Them, nobody knows. No man can endure this pummeling. The fight is stopped on the signal to Frankie Sephora. Row after row after row from the ring, the crowd is standing and cheering as he just cannonated Jake Lamarta into a the defeat. And when I say that, I mean Jake wouldn't want to quit. He wanted to go. He Number one down, man. He never got me down, right? You hear me? You never got me down. Yeah, see, look. Oh, yeah. And in the 13th round, the hard luck round, the championship of the world has changed hands.
0: So, you know, he's like the owner of this nightclub, and, you know, he's, like, going up and doing, like, this little, like, kind of semi-stand-up routine. Like, you know, now he's, like, he's he's realized that he's, you know, obviously athletically he's passed his prom, so he's going to make his, like... Uh, life's work now he's a you know a personality and yeah i thought that was kind of an like mc a, yeah. yeah it feels very like kind of rat packy like i don't know he never sang but it seems like reminiscent of maybe what sinatra or gene martin would do like you know and now here's your host and you mm-hmm. know he would he would maybe crack wise sing a song although probably jake Lamotta couldn't sing so all he could do is like crack wise and maybe <laughs> recite a, a poem or a line of lines of dialogue that you may recognize exactly again on the waterfront very on the news yes yeah. Um, mm-hmm. on the very broken nose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like I just I found the third act probably the most compelling part of the movie. And I don't know if that's that's fair or not. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm judging this movie on the right criteria. <laughs> Cuz it's also like the least amount of action obviously we get. He's out of the ring now. But also it's just kind of like <sighs> so the interesting thing about the movie is that it ends on a bible verse. And uh, well, he he recites the scene. Oh, you're right, you're right. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the final epigraph or whatever is a psalm, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but he the final lines of the movie is, are him reciting uh, Brando's big speech uh, on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can't remember what psalm is uh, put in text of the just before the final credits. I, I can't remember. Do you have that? Uh, or? I don't. I don't. But it's actually it's not a psalm. It's 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 this, it's a story from uh, John where he heals the blind man oh really okay yeah and uh you know it's like i was blind and now i see and it's like it's it's weird because you could interpret that as like oh jake lamotta's gained redemption or something like that and i don't know if i buy that because again like the, the whole point of the third act feels like a fall from grace and you know there's no kind of sense of redemption i guess you know with the making of the movie and obviously the biography that he wrote about himself you could Argue that it's like a look back, and it's like, oh, the the folly of man, my pride, my pride. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Like I, I thought it was just weird, kind of ending it on Bible verse, because I, <laughs> you know, because again, like I didn't get the sense of redemption at all. You it know, could be, would, it could be an allusion to the autobiography, is oh, what I'm okay. assuming. Got it. And I think he's also striving for this like poetry, and if you, if you make biblical allusions, like, oh, you seem smart and spiritual. And... <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's clear that's not who Jake Lamotta is. interesting. Yeah, so maybe that was the I don't know the impetus behind that scene. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing too is like I know it was written by Paul Schrader, so obviously I'm getting like, ooh, first reformed connections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paul Schrader is a very spiritual guy, so maybe yeah, that was his that was mm-hmm. his final touch cuz yeah, we never see Jake Lamotta in church. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Even though this whole like time sailors. he's yeah, he's been such a good Christian man this whole time, courting 14-year-olds. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
3: Some people aren't that lucky. Like the one that Marlon Brando played in On the Waterfront, an up and comer who's now a down and outer. You remember that scene in the back of the car with his brother Charlie, a small time racket guy, and it went something like this. It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. You remember that night at the garden, you came down my dressing room and you said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. Remember that? This ain't your night? My night. I could have taken Wilson apart that night. So what happens? He gets a title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A One-way ticket to Pelucaville. I was never no good after that night, Charlie. It was like a peak you reach, and then it's downhill. It was you, Charlie. You was my brother. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have looked out for me just a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit. Instead of making me take them dice for the short end money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. It was you, Charlie. How
2: you
0: no, it's a, it's an absolutely gorgeous movie, and yeah. um, again, it's because it's so well made. It's like for all its flaws, like it just kind of made me love it more. Mm. Where it's like, if if the if the standard if the quality of filmmaking wasn't there, I I could totally see myself being like, this is just a mess. It's just all cobbled <laughs> together. Look at it. It's like a it's like a it's like a lasagna that's falling apart. Look at this, ma. How could you give me this? Where's my steak? <laughs> Where's that gabagool? <laughs> but uh, no, because again, the, the the craft is just all there, and it's just, it all works. It it Like, it all comes together just so beautifully. It's just a great mm. kind of, again, I keep going back to the word impressionistic, but I think that it's the perfect word for it, where it's, uh, you know, in its looseness, in its kind of artisticness, it all kind of captures it beautifully. Yeah, and that's a great point on... The kind of messy quality because again I hadn't seen this movie for a while a few years now mm-hmm. and first opening shot is that uh, that brilliant title sequence um, <laughs> Italian strings like lift up and it's just him like shadow boxing in the ring and the, and the movie looks like really grainy mm-hmm. and I thought like oh is this gonna feel like a 70s movie in terms of pacing or quality you know where the film's kind of degraded or you know not the best celluloid in the world but no I mean that's kind of that's a great opening salvo in terms of uh, exemplifying who Jake LaMotta is, like, you know, a brilliant tex- technical boxer, but also rough around the edges, and not even you know, like center of the frame in his own life anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so like kind of shoved aside, like it, the the boxing yeah. ring is literally framed, like it has such a big um, presence in his life that he's kind of overshadowed by it, mm-hmm. and but he's like still like fighting and hustling and trying to, you know, beat off these imaginary foes. So yes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, greatest fight outside the ring. Yes, <laughs> I'm the I'm the first and only critic who's ever made that comparison. So mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> uh, where's my Pulitzer? <laughs> okay, <I'm>, thank you, <laughs> John. We strive to uh, deliver <laughs> uh, original insight into all these classics, but yeah, Raging Bull somehow tr- transcends them all. Everything that can be said about Raging Bull uh, is apt. <laughs> so. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Turns out, good movie. <laughs> newsflash <laughs> hot take that movie everyone else liked we finally saw it and we liked it too <laughs> great <laughs> just saw heat oh. <laughs> it was like 10 years ago <laughs> man watching that bit makes you feel old <laughs> <laughs> looking at Jim Gaffigan makes you feel old <laughs> actually no I think he's getting better with age it's weird mm. It's, I think it's the removal of the glasses and that big bushy beard. Yeah, I true. follow on Instagram, so I get to I get to watch him rage in real time. Mm. It's great. He's in a Sundance movie too. Johnny has a dramatic turn. Maybe 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 it's a uh, Jim Gaffigan's time to shine oh, at the Oscars this year. It's it's gonna be the next this year's Chapo Quitic. Yeah. It's gonna light <laughs> the world on fire when it's bought <laughs> out by Amazon. <laughs> Jeff Bezos love my movie. Mm. <laughs> Probably this year at Sundance, it was all just everything was hoovered up by Amazon and Netflix. See, but that's the thing. Amazon said it's gonna make it's gonna stop, you know, investing in so much indie stuff and try to go for the bigger. They're investing like a billion dollars into this, like their own Game of Thrones. Like they want to do Lord of the Rings, but Game of Thrones. So, like, what what are they doing, Amazon? What are you doing? What are you doing? I I don't know. I mean, they they already don't make money. They're going to open up their own proper movie studio and just ask you know, state governments for billions and billions of dollars in tax. Breaks. Are they going to put that in Queens too? Is that where that's going? Probably. Yes, okay. I do think they literally have a they're part of their Queens plan. Um, thank you, New York state government. Um, <laughs> thank you, Governor Cuomo. Yes. <laughs> now remember, the mouthwash, you want a mouthwash after you're done. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, i i find boots are really tasty too <laughs> uh, oh you want boots oh correct your head yeah. you, you're not you're not as lowly in the cutter as i am uh, no <laughs> that's the the, the PG 13 version i suppose <laughs> but anyway yes i believe their queen's plans uh does include a amazon studio so look forward to the amazon original series raging bull okay um, with executive producer Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro. Oh, this is going to be great. Scorsese. Speaking of which, I also th- did want to mention this since it was just the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe this was a Super Bowl commercial, but Google somehow wrangled Joe Pesci out of retirement <laughs> <laughs> to what? do like a 25 years later uh, ad with Macaulay Culkin. Well, I th- first of all, <laughs> yeah, I think it was Macaulay Culkin who coaxed Joe Pesci out of retirement. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah, because look, Macaulay Culkin, he's crushing it right now. And he's always been crushing it, That's and true. I'm glad to see him on the forefront of the nation's mind once again. So good <laughs> on you, Coken. Yes, and as long as Joe Pesci's getting paid, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> Craig, he's got the Irishman coming out next this year. The Wait, Irishman is he, is he returning for the Irishman as well? Yeah, that was okay. that was part of the big selling point. It's like, Pesci's oh, back, was, baby. Okay, I thought it was just Bettino and De Niro um, teaming up after Righteous Kill, you know, after that lit the world on fire 10 years ago. No, no, no. Scorsese's like, I've got to get the gang back together. One more ride. It's going to okay. be great. All right. I don't know why. That was kind of sarcastic, but also, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Coming to Netflix to, soon, too. <laughs> Has Scorsese ever done a bad movie? Uh, clearly you don't remember uh New York, New York, um, his musical. Oh, okay. <laughs> I it's not that I don't remember it. I'd never heard of it before. So. Okay. I guess that's the thing about great directors is if they do do a shitty movie, it tends to be forgotten in the way like no one's no one's gonna bring up nineteen forty one to Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And, again. And I wouldn't say like it's not like a boondoggle, like to say like Steven Spielberg's 1941 or hook or like, yeah, <laughs> just boondoggles like, but like silence and like, is like interminable or something, not interminable, but yeah, it's just kind of rough around the edges. So, mm. but they've got Spider-Man in it. It's kind of uh, Andrew Garfield. I know. And, and, uh, Liam Neeson, um, mm. God rest his soul as well. <laughs> or God rest the soul of his career. <laughs> Uh, look, I just, I didn't, uh, your first tweet was the first thing I read about it. So I was like, oh God, what, I, what am I going to Exactly. Well, that's how I learned about it was <laughs> via, via tweets. Is like, oh, not a good look, Liam Neeson. And mm-hmm. I'm like, and you have to reverse engineer what the hell happened in the news. Oh, jeez. There's so much news these days. Oh, it's so exhausting. I know. Look, look, I got an idea. I got an idea. Let's Go distract ahead. people by recommending them things that they could spend their time watching instead of following the news. How about that? That sounds great. John. All right. How do we how do we signify this though? (sighs) I don't know. I was thinking a big, bright, beautiful spotlight. 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 It's
1: time, Robbie. It's time.
0: That's great, John. I want to talk about the, <laughs> Liam Neeson's The Commuter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I disagree. Complete waste of yes. Sam Neill in that movie. That was, Complete a, that was waste. inauspicious yeah inauspicious for me to see that movie. But anyway, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about another Oscar contender coming out this year. Oh, this is your second week in a row you get to do an Oscar contender. Jeez. Indeed. I, yep. Because <sighs> I'm not planning a wedding. I got free time, baby. Yeah, good for you. Wow.
1: You're yes. great.
0: Last week, I talked about If Beale Street Could Talk, um, which is not up for any major awards at the Academies this year. Um, instead, I want to talk about the, oh, the favorite <laughs> Ooh. for this year's Oscars, and that's The Favorite, mm. starring Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weiss, and Emma Stone, directed by Yalaf Llamelos. Laf- <laughs> <laughs> and just copious amounts of kernel just kernel yeah. everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> th- you know what? That was fun. I had no idea. <laughs> I literally, I, hand on heart, I had no idea that this would be, like, Game of Thrones with more cunnilingus. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I think that's the what's going to be lost to history, is the reputation of this movie, is the fact that it kind of tricks you into thinking that you're just going to see a nice, stately, Oscar-contending costume drama, and it turns out to be as raunchy and kind of, uh, I don't want to say, like, deprecate it but you know it's obviously not you know as clean cut as a as a costume drama as a the costume drama marketing would lead you to believe it is Yes, and as I was watching the movie, I could see basically the bones of the you know typical costume drama. Say like Mary Queen's of Sc- Queen of Scots this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I could see. I haven't seen that movie, but I can just see from the trailers like they're aspiring to this great you know political costume drama. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, filled with all the drama. Oh, the of, like, battle you. of wills between two strong personalities. <laughs> yes, but thankfully in this this overqualified cast in the hands of uh, this director Laf- Laf- Lafmos, um if I could pronounce his name properly which i can't Mm -hmm. i'll just say this greek guy who directed the lobster um um, it is kind of like a a very witty funny little tale because it 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 also feels like pretty small even though it there's a lot of reference to like oh there's a war going on and there's implications of people's livelihoods and in how they're trying to manipulate the queen to act a certain way so Mm -hmm. it it is a large-scale story like a costume drama is um but just the the kind of, there's this air of goofiness going on <laughs> in the story and um, that's lent by the fact that Rachel Weisz and, and Emma Watson are the, are the little foils here. Um, Emma Watson comes in she's a, she's a long distance cousin who's lost all her power and favor and so she's looking for employment under Queen Anne. Mm-hmm. And this is when she enters the crosshairs of Rachel Vice, who's the who's the literal favorite mm-hmm. <laughs> at the start of the movie. She's the one that that gets uh, Queen Anne to like, who manipulates her to like continue the war or threatens like taxes over the over Parliament members that she doesn't like. Interesting. And and of course manipulates her um, metaphor uh, metaphorically and literally, because um, <laughs> it turns out Queen Anne uh, enjoys the company of ladies. Hey, <laughs> yes. Hey, I'd go gay for you know queen. <laughs> I guess I should say that. I go straight for a queen. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's kind of the weird thing because really the movie, I think the Academy has has the categories backwards. Like Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz feel like the stars, mm-hmm. and Olivia Coleman is, I don't know, somewhat the comic relief. Of course, she's the she's the actual s- center of power throughout the whole story, um, and also certainly the funniest character. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> It feels like she doesn't have her own agency. She's kind of at the will of these two ladies. Mm, yeah, that. but she's already like, uh, again, this is what I kind of hate about award season, is the fact that it's like, it's not about who did the best, it's about who's due. And Olivia yeah. Coleman, God knows, she's due for, you know, she's already won like the Golden Globe. And, you know, she's like, if she wins the Oscar, obviously that would be exciting. Well, John, she's not as due as Glenn Close, who's on like, <laughs> oh, seventh I nomination. Guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true but it's for a movie that no one's no one's ever heard of exactly the difference is people are actually watching the favorite whereas nobody saw The Wife when it came out in like August <laughs> it's almost like they were like oh crap Glenn Close is due let's, let's organize a movie around it so she can get yeah. nominated <laughs> it's like we have to be convinced it even came out <laughs> yeah but um, so the, the cast is great like the the story and I don't know if, well I'll get to like kind of the, the, the problems with the story later um <laughs> But I think if there's one character if there's one character who hasn't gotten enough awards attention it's Nicholas Holt um mm. in, in his first what feels like non X-Men movie in a long time um <laughs> he he'd argue is the funniest character cuz he's always in the, like this 12 foot tall wig mm. <laughs> And like uh, sandblasted with like foundation and little beauty mark or whatever. Like he's, I think he's the most hysterical because he is so impotent in light of uh, Rachel Weisz's character, and he's also like a, a big manipulator of Emma Stone as well, or at least tries to be. Uh, <laughs> interesting, yeah. So I'm, I'm a little uh, miffed that he didn't get uh, best supporting actor nominations for his his hysterical turn as uh, Lord <laughs> Hartley. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, but. Yeah, it has all these like good setups and the the comedy is like oh you know, that kind of like huh like that that <laughs> level of you know nothing nothing gut busting yeah um, classic British humor lines. like the <laughs> Yes, all the best lines though are given to uh, Olivia Coleman. Those are the only gut-busting moments when she, you know, <laughs> admonishes like after she faints in, in a speech before Parliament, and you know, mm-hmm. they scramble and try to save face there. Like the those are those are great scenes. However, at at some point the this, the movie just kind of lost me, and it's around the third act when um, th- this tension between Rachel Weiss and uh, Emma Stone is res- is resolved. Somebody does come out on top. Mm-hmm. And so, like once that happened like w- once that kind of split happens like the the movie just feels completely deflated yeah, and so, in spite of all the work that it's done to not only you know set up this kind of silly world um with these like overburdened <laughs> characters like once once it kind of like once their relationship falls apart, the rest of the movie kind of does wow. um yeah, with like kind of the mild humor and like i i I don't understand like there's nothing superlative about it, unfortunately mm. Um, other than maybe the cinematography, they use a lot of natural light, and it does feel authentic to, like a, uh, like this this period. Like uh, I was kind of like wrapped. Up in the oh, world. and you would know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly, John. I have been into England and been in these very ornate uh, castles and things. So, <laughs> at the time period, okay. Come on. What yes. Are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no one believes you, Greg. <laughs> Fooling anybody, but that's the thing. Like you, you enter these movies thinking, "Oh, this is going to be superlative or something," and there's and there's not enough kind of meat on the bones here. Yeah, um, yeah, like very good, like costume drama. Like I can understand the the critical uh, accolades it's received, um, but in terms of like finding a mass audience or kind of like reaching a, a an idiot like me, it just didn't. <laughs> well, I'm kind of surprised again the the mass audience that it has found again because. Mm. Uh, the marketing has been so good like kind of showing you that it's like oh yes it's a stately courtly drama and then it turns out to be you know something wilder and something obviously Mm -hmm. way more offbeat than that i am kind of surprised at how many people are talking about it and how much attention it has garnered as opposed to like again Its biggest rival, Mary Queen of Scots, which, you know, came and went like a (laughs) fart in the wind. Yeah. I'm going to have to say that probably has something to do with um, Fox Searchlight, this movie's distributor. um, Ah, nah. Who are very good. Yes, (laughs) very good campaigners at award season. Yep they know they know who to give screeners to they know who to give yes. all the right screeners to yes they know where to put up those bus ads they know where to <laughs> for your consideration the yes favorite. i don't want to be i don't want to be cynical but uh the oscar the award season is a lot like washington uh, a lot of people are there because somebody paid for them to be there oh, okay <laughs> now but are you a fan of this director because you've seen the lobster right I no, I haven't. I, oh. I wanted to see the lobster before this movie because it's on Netflix now. <laughs> yeah, check out Netflix and all the other movies are hoovering up. Um, but <laughs> but this was my first exposure to him, and, and he didn't write it. So maybe there's that kind of um, it. Maybe it doesn't have his voice or something. Or oh, okay, like there's only there's there's a light sprinkling of uh, that lathmos uh, salt <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than the full meal that you can expect from say the lobster or the killing of a sacred deer or his first movie Dogtooth, which I know people loved so oh okay all right. Got yeah. it. all right yeah so i wish i wish i could speak more authoritatively on that unfortunately i can't <sighs> i know well now i've embarrassed you <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> you got me <laughs> now it's john pull up the the bars of that meme <laughs> folks we got him <laughs> Well, for this week, I want to recommend uh, another show that's gotten quite a bit of uh, awards accolades as well. No, um, what is it? Well, is it on Amazon or Netflix, John? Yeah, it, it's just it, they just put the second season on Netflix. Okay. Um, it's a shame because it's a Ryan Murphy show, and obviously, if there's one thing <laughs> we hate, is giving Ryan Murphy any credit, because he's a man who makes garbage. But and he does. <laughs> but sometimes he gets the right people involved, and we get a. Uh, uh, a uh, piece of modern art, beautiful trash, as it were, <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the instance with the second season of American Crime Story, subtitled "The Assassination of Gianni Vesas. Versace. Versace. I believe. I think I'm wearing a Versas coat. Versace, yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's my favorite. He's my favorite designer uh, next to Herm's. Um, I really like Herm's. <laughs> Yes, it's the it's the assassination of Johnny Versace. Yes, now John, you and I love the first season of American Crime Story. The people you loved the Simpson. first season of American Crime no. Story. <laughs> I didn't watch it. Oh, after okay. oh, I the people, you <laughs> after the people versus O.J., I was like, "Eh, I've had my fill," so I never actually yeah. got around to watching it. But this story, I thought, I thought, yeah, you meant the documentary, the the exceptional documentary mm-hmm. O.J. Made in America. Like, uh, obviously, obviously, the first season of this FX show is nowhere near as good as that documentary, <laughs> but still like worth watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, watching this, I'm going to probably revisit it and see. Because uh, this was really well made. Um, I can Mm -hmm. definitely tell, though, that obviously they fudged a lot of facts or over dramatized a lot of things. No. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? A Ryan Murphy show? (laughs) Or just a show in general? (laughs) Why isn't this a documentary? Hmm? (laughs) Ryan Murphy, you're on blast. (laughs) I know. (laughs) John, you're giving him side eye. You're spilling tea. (laughs) <laughs> the tea has been spilled, my friends. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this is uh the story of the assassination of Johnny Versace, which is uh, kind of a fascinating story because I knew that Johnny Versace was just kind of kills killed by a gra- uh, crazed fan outside his um front door. I knew yeah. that side of the story. I did not realize that this was part of a whole murder spree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I like true I, I'd heard of Andrew. The perpetrator of this murder was um Andrew Cullinan. I don't know how to pronounce uh, his name. Kunanen, yeah, yeah, but I, I was aware of this like his his kind of killing spree sort of and, mm-hmm. and um the murder of John Johnny Versace was the highest profile of the of his victims mm-hmm. and so yeah we actually and what's interesting about it is that uh the structural kind of challenge that they had was they actually do it in kind of reverse chrono- chronological order they mm-hmm. literally start with the assassination and then work backwards and so we kind of see him you know down this dark path of drugs deceit and you know basically murder um, mm-hmm. and it, and homosexuality John Oh of course sort of oh, cuz you know those all those things are connected <laughs> exactly <laughs> it works for the first couple episodes okay um, um, because again you obviously want to start your show off as exciting as you can so it obviously starts off with the murder and then works its way backwards and then you know structurally it kind of wor- it's it's interesting cuz it's almost like foreshadowing in reverse it's mm-hmm. like, you know, something will happen, and then you'll get the kind of significance of it in an episode later, even though it's happening in the past. Yeah. Um, that happens, uh, the kind of high point of the series is, the sadly, the murder of Jeff Trial, which is one of his kind of, like, best friends. Mm-hmm. And so when we when he actually does murder Jeff, we don't really know much about him, but then the next episode goes into his whole backstory, and we kind of learn, you know, the significance that he was in Andrew's life, and, you know, who he was and who he represented, and, that kind of works. Uh, sadly, by like the sixth, seventh episode, it's kind of like, all right, now you're just filling in like the plot holes. And so I don't really, mm. ca- I'm not as invested. And at that point, you're almost like, well, you could have just done it in chronological order if you wanted to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's very good. Obviously, it's it's carried by a, a great a great lead. Um, Andrew Cunanan is played by Darren Chris, who I was confused at first because, you know, Andrew Conan is supposed to be Filipino or at least half Filipino. And I was like, why would they hire this cracker to do this? Like, where's the big, where's the big uproar, you know, about you know Asian American yeah. casting? Turns out, Darren Chris actually is half Filipino. Which, oh really? Okay. Yeah. Which, well, I've seen a picture. I I thought Andrew Kunan was as white as snow. Um. No, no, no. He was half Filipino. I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's weird because, you know, eventually once you get to like the seventh episode, we go back to his childhood and they cast a very Filipino family, <laughs> for his, okay. you know, for his younger self. So I was kind of surprised. Mm. But I mean, Darren Chris obviously has a, you know, he does a great performance. He does that great kind of, like, steely, you know, serial killer facade. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is his first dramatic, because I know he's, like, a Broadway star, right? Or... Oh, yeah. He's a big song and dance guy. He was, uh... He was in Glee, so that's how he kind of connected with, uh... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And weirdly, he plays a lot of gay characters, even though he's straight in real life, but... Really? Yeah, I know. Believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He's just that good. (laughs) Okay. And, um... We don't get a lot of Johnny Versace in it. Surprisingly, we kind of go through the highlights of his life, and you know mm. his his uh, you know him coming out, you know him you know reaching the top of his game. It, a lot of his story kind of focuses on like the business aspect and the kind of thematic resonance. I think it's trying to connect to the fact that you have you know the parallels between Andrew Cunan and this guy who just was a consummate liar who just could not be real with anybody and couldn't be authentic yeah. to himself. And just was craving love from any other human being on the planet, yeah. as opposed to Johnny Versace, who did live authentically. He, you know, they, they, they make a point that you know he was like, oh, he was very courageous for coming out. And I was like, eh, yeah. you're a fashion designer. I think everyone kind of <laughs> knew. Come on, John. It was a different time. Right? Yeah, it was we a can't... different time. It was the 90s. Yeah. I mean, they do make a the big point of like, it's the 90s. You know, you can't be gay. You can't be open. Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it's the fact that, you know, Johnny Versace lived very openly, he lived very authentically, and he was, you know, universally loved for it, as opposed to Darren Chris who felt like he had to lie to get any sort of respect whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I know that was a big part of his story. He was like a con man, and mm-hmm. like, how was that tied up to, like, this kind of repressed sexuality and not being able to, you know, be himself in light of a, a culture that wasn't accepting of him? Exactly, yeah. Which, but also that doesn't really work because obviously he is extremely gay. The whole show is nice. gay. <laughs> gay, AF, as the millennials say. Yeah, wait, a Ryan Murphy show? <laughs> I know, seem... right? Because, and that's the other weird thing. It's like it shows, but again, maybe that's his facade. He seems very comfortable in his homosexuality. He seems very comfortable in his skin. But mm-hmm. the second you know he has to talk about what he actually does for a living, or you know how he knows these people, he's like he's just lying his ass off. <laughs> <You> know, yeah. <laughs> so the one thing I am kind of very disappointed in is that it doesn't give a lot of time to the investigation. Okay. Uh, because it, it, it well, yeah, it is a true crime show. You expect all the, you know, <laughs> we get it. Once he shoots Versace, we get a lot of scenes, kind of the police investigating and like the FBI, but mm-hmm. it's, we don't get enough time with it. And I wanted them to talk more about how they bungled it. We do get it like a handful of scenes, but that's really not the main focus of the show. Cause like, like, um, Like the O.J. season, you know, that one was based on the run of his life. This one's actually based on a book called um, Vulgar Favors. Okay. And the subtitle of Vulgar Favors is Andrew Cunanan, Johnny Versace, and the largest failed manhunt in U.S. history. (laughs) And so I was kind of hoping that they would kind of go into just how much the FBI bungled it. Yes. Well... because I'd heard, or at least this is the rumor. I'm not sure if the book or TV show confirms this. Like mm-hmm. the reason that Andrew Conan was permitted to go on this killing spree because the circles that he was going into were like uh, gay establishments and something, and all the agents were like, "Ooh, gross." <laughs> <We're> not <laughs> <laughs> There was definitely a part of that. Um, again, like the highlight of the—I I, I hesitate to call it highlight—but it's like the the part that shines the most is the killing of Jeff Trial, and okay. You know, obviously, when the cops go in and they find the scene, they obviously misdiagnose immediately based on all the gay paraphernalia that's around. <laughs> okay. And one of the other kind of like interesting things that happens in that scene is they realize that they're there without a search warrant. And the main detective is like, all right, we got to get out of here. And they're like, what, we're just going to leave the body? Is like, yeah, we're going to do this by the book. And so they mm-hmm. literally leave the body, come back another 24 hours after, you know, they have the search warrant. And again, there is there is this kind of like undercurrent of, yes, because this is gay people involved in gay murders. There is a, yeah. like a level of disrespect mm-hmm. surrounding that, but it doesn't go into too much detail. I wanted kind of them to put more of a fine point on it and kind of like show how really inept these cops were. Yeah. <laughs> instead, it's kind of like, instead, it's kind of just like little dressing on the overall story. Yeah, inept are, I know this is a case with like gangland killings or uh, mm. African-American victims, like they just, they're dismissive. They just don't care. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> allegedly, most police forces are just white power forces um, kind of reinforcing our, our, you know, predominantly white social class. So. How dare you, Greg? Our boys in blue. <laughs> are out there every day yes <laughs> the blue lives matter until you take off the blue, the blue uniform and suddenly they <laughs> suddenly you're not that's interesting interesting hmm. curious yeah. but yes very good show check it out okay yep on Netflix now not sponsored by Netflix fuck Netflix <laughs> yes. no I, exactly it's, it's amazing in this uh, in this economy of ours we have two two choices and that's about it mm. I mean we have Amazon Prime <laughs> who wants to watch Transparent <laughs> Let's to get around to do a transparent viewing party. Not not so much these days. Is the show officially over or? That's a thing. I don't know. They were they talked about doing a season without Jeffrey Tambor, but uh, like a final season. Like again, they want to do like the whole House of Cards thing. Yes, which by the way, I I don't lament the loss of like prestige television. And I will say this about Transparent and also American Crime Story, which you just brought up. Yeah, but you know, back in the day. You could come out with a new season reliably every year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and instead, these jamokes can't, like, <laughs> oh, uh, new season this this time, this year, um, after after a three-year hiatus. <laughs> after no, cause cause 18 months, we to... we'll come out with three new episodes. Yeah. Because <laughs> we want to make sure we're telling a quality story. Like, no, I want my content now, damn it. <laughs> Bitch. Come I on. I know. In the age of YouTube, you can't be taking more time, all right? <laughs> no. <sighs> You're canceled in my mind, all right? You may not be literally canceled by Amazon, but I'm canceling you, okay? And that's tea. I really regret teaching you that. (laughs) Folks, you heard it here. I taught Greg what tea meant. And I I know what it means. Greg's really herbal. herbal. (laughs) There's herbal. Uh, There's chai uh, ruba. Greg's really up on the meme culture because, indeed, I am. Our Twitter page... Do you follow Aspiring Snobs on Twitter? Because you should. Yes. And uh, so please follow us on Twitter. We also have a Facebook page. We're also sharing some dank memes Mm. on uh, why the cops are good and you should (laughs) respect them. These colors don't run, okay, guys? No. No, they don't. And then, if you want to reach out to us directly, you can always email us at AspiringSnobs at gmail.com with your questions and recommendations. Yes. And since we've given you so- three solid recommendations here, Raging Bull, The Favorite, and American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, um, why don't you do us a favor? Mm-hmm. Go to your podcast service of choice, wherever you're listening right now, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. Give us a five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, you'll help other people find the show and, uh, you know, help help us out. You know, we'll feel good um, and we'll keep <laughs> doing the show. Because <laughs> can- it's not about the money. It is, it is about having fun and... <laughs> feeling good about the the podcast that we're putting out. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, like we need validation, folks. So please, yes. for <laughs> the love of god, please give us five stars. Yes. <laughs> Without those stars, I'm nothing. I'm like I'm I'm like Andrew Cunanan. I can't be trusted <laughs> myself. I might I might go kill some ex-lovers. <laughs> yes. John speaking of validation. Yes. The last two weeks we've looked at uh movies that have been nominated for best picture mm-hmm. at the Academy Awards but did not win. Mm-hmm. And next week we're going to look at a movie that did win Best Picture. Hey-oh. And that movie is Unforgiven. Oh, revisionist Western. Ooh. Yes. Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's not? I thought it was. Well, uh, well it's revisionist in the sense that uh, Clint Eastwood is older, playing his <laughs> uh, <laughs> playing his Lone Ranger routine. Oh, okay. But I, th- I think we'll get to it. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss the... I'll have to rewatch Buster Scruggs to really kind of get a good... Compare and contrast points. So no, you'll 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 find any excuse to rewatch Buster. I, I love, love Buster me Spooks. some Buster Scruggs. <laughs> yes. Cool, cool water. <laughs> no, can't add the episode on that. I already did that. So you're gonna have to come up with a, a better song to close out well, this episode. I, well, I already have one, John. Oh, <laughs> ooh, yes. Let's hear it. Well, well uh, I guess we gotta close know. out. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you better help sign us off and then All right. get to it. Well. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, we got them. <laughs>